An ad hominem attack is an argument that targets the maker of a statement, that person's implied motive or other people who might be connected to the statement being made, all in an effort to prove that statement wrong, or rather to shatter the credibility of the people making the statement, which it is implied then renders the statement moot by association. This term ad hominem is Latin for to the man or to the person, and it originally referred to a statement that was calculated to appeal to the person that is being addressed, that you're trying to convince of something, more than to impartial reason. So you would adjust the way you make the argument based on the person you are speaking to in order to appeal to something that is specifically about them, rather than making the most logical version of the argument. But today, it more typically refers to stripping the person that you're arguing against of legitimacy rather than attacking or addressing their argument directly. A more specific example of an ad hominem argument is called tu quoque, which is Latin for you also. A tu quoque argument will often claim that the person making a statement has at some point spoken or acted in a way that is inconsistent with the statement that they are now making. If you were to say being cruel to animals is wrong, and I were to counter saying, but you're wearing leather shoes so clearly your statement is meaningless, I would be making a tu quoque style ad hominem attack against you, which would be a fallacy because you could believe that being cruel to animals is wrong while still be wearing leather shoes one does not necessarily cancel out the other. You may be a hypocrite, but there are numerous reasons why you might wear leather shoes while also believing that cruelty against animals is wrong. And frankly, you being a hypocrite does not diminish the potential validity of your argument. It's not how arguments work. There's another ad hominem subspecies that is like tu quoque and vanilla ad hominem arguments, also an informal fallacy, but it's also one that is fairly widely used, and perhaps especially right now. A bulverism is when you assume that a statement is wrong from the get-go, and then attack the person making that statement by using their motive or position or identity as a rationale for why their argument must be false. Again, deciding that ahead of time before you've even heard the argument. There's an example given on the Wikipedia page for bulverism that I particularly like, and which I think explains this concept concisely while also showing how ridiculous it is. And that example is this. A mathematician argues that 2 plus 2 equals 4, because 2 is half of 4. A literature professor scoffs at this argument, saying, you only say that because you're a mathematician, and your professional commitment requires it. This flavor of bulverism is what we call an appeal to profession. And as I said, we also see versions that appeal to motive and identity, and all of them follow essentially the same path. Someone makes a statement, we assume that statement is wrong beforehand, and then use something about whoever it is that made that statement to belittle the argument that they have presented, to use them as an anchor to weigh down the argument that they are making. What I want to talk about today is a close relative 
to ad hominem in that it is a logical fallacy that is both informal, meaning that the contents of the argument fail to adequately support the supposed conclusion of that argument, as opposed to a formal fallacy in which the statement being made contains flawed reasoning. And it's also similar in that it is a fallacious argument that is being used with alarming frequency right now by a number of different people and groups against other people and groups. Today, I want to discuss whataboutism. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported show, which means that it is brought to you by you. If you are enjoying what you're hearing, if you're picking up what I'm putting down, consider stopping by letsknowthings.com and clicking on the contribute page, where you'll find an array of different ways that you can support the show. Everything from the basics of leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it with your social network or a friend who you think might enjoy it, to contributing directly via PayPal or Venmo or by purchasing one of the books that I've written. And speaking of which, I have a brand new book that is out that has just hit shelves the, I believe, the day before this episode is due to go live. It is called Becoming Who We Need to Be, and chances are if you enjoy the show, you will also enjoy this book. You can find it wherever books are sold. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, you will receive a free 30-day trial of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice. And if you are lacking inspiration in terms of what book to use that credit on, stay tuned till the end of the show, and I will recommend a book for you to check out. And if you go to hostgator.com slash LKT, you will receive a substantial discount off of HostGator's already very reasonable prices. This is the hosting company that I use for all of my website and online property-related needs. They are an excellent company, hostgator.com slash LKT. All right, let's get back to the show. So the article that I'm going to unspool today comes from Foreign Policy magazine, and it's entitled The Slippery Slope of Trump's Dangerous Whataboutism. And this article starts with two quotes from President Trump the first of which was spoken while he was being interviewed by Bill O'Reilly of Fox News on February of 2017, while defending his vocal appreciation for Russia, and Vladimir Putin in particular, against statements from Bill O'Reilly that Putin is a strongman dictator who uses violence to keep people in line. In response, Trump said, quote, There are a lot of killers. We've got a lot of killers. What do you think? Our country's so innocent? End quote. The second quote from that article was something similar that he said on MSNBC's Joe Scarborough show, when Scarborough said that Putin, quote, kills journalists that don't agree with him, end quote. To which Trump replied, quote, well, I think that our country does plenty of killing too, end quote. The term whataboutism, or whataboutery, as it's sometimes called in Britain, was coined by Edward Lucas, who was the Russian bureau chief for The Economist, from 1998 until 2002. So he was able to see the modern application of some old-school Soviet tactics as they were resurgent 
in the early Putin years, which was a period of time that began in earnest when Boris Yeltsin left office in 1999. This tactic was a bit of a throwback and saw a great deal of use during the Soviet era in Russia to counter moral claims that were made by the Western liberal democracies of that period against the burgeoning pseudo-communist crypto-authoritarian Soviet states. The first international mention of this tactic was in the Atlantic magazine in 1947, after former ambassador to the Soviet Union and presidential hopeful William Averill Harriman railed against Soviet imperialism during a speech. A response to that speech was published in Pravda, which was the official newspaper of the Soviet Union, and which was at the time the equivalent of modern-day RT, the RT News Network meaning they would essentially publish some real news, but that news was filtered through Soviet leadership and slanted to meet their needs, and it was also more or less a voice box for the Soviet leadership to talk to their people through kind of the buffer of news. So not a real news network in the sense of being a free press, but it went through the motions of seeming like a news network, Pravda and RT. But this response piece in Pravda countered the anti-Soviet speech without really addressing the issue of Soviet imperialism, which was what was being criticized. And it instead said that the United States laws and policies regarding race and minorities were horrible, and that their repeated insults to human dignity were not being used as an excuse by the Soviets to start a war with the U.S., The implication being, you say that we've got problems and that those problems should be used to turn the world against us. But hey, look at yourself, you hypocrites. Before there was an official term applied to this method, aside from periodically being referred to as an example of two quake, which I mentioned in the intro, the you-also fallacious but effective debate tactic, it was often referred to as the and-you-are-lynching-Negroes strategy. Because anything the United States would say about the Soviet Union, from their human rights issues to their demolition of free speech and free movement for their citizens, would be met with a catchphrase that referred back to the U.S.'s abysmal record in dealing with its black population and of dealing with other racial minorities. From a piece in The Economist on the topic of whataboutism from 2008, quote, but it can be overdone, and in the case of Soviet propagandists, it was and gave rise to subversive jokes. For example, a caller to a radio program asks, what is the average wage of an American manual worker? A long pause ensues. Then the answer comes. Over there, they lynch Negroes. A phrase that, by the time of the Soviet collapse, had become a synecdote for Soviet propaganda as a whole. So this tactic was so widespread, it became representative of their entire approach to dealing with uncomfortable subjects. Don't look at what we're doing. Look at what those people over there are doing. But all that said, this phrase in particular did point out an uncomfortable truth about racial inequality in the free world. And it's still true in many ways. And although things have definitely improved drastically since back then, racial inequality is still an issue around the world. And in the U.S. more, or at least in different ways, than in most places. We still have a lot of inequitable laws on the books and prejudiced traditions and habits that are built into our culture. And this is true for many groups, not just African Americans, but this is particularly evident in their case because, frankly, they were attacked, kidnapped, enslaved, 
and treated as subhumans for a huge percentage of our nation's history. That's not something that just goes away overnight, nor is it something that has short-lived, easy-to-sweep-under-the-rug ramifications. And it's something that's going to continue to require a hell of a lot of attention in the future as well. What's so clever about this debate tactic, this whataboutism, is that it weaponizes those very things I just said against us. It weaponizes an awareness of our own shortcomings and, importantly, a desire to make things better against those of us who are both aware of our problems and who want to correct the mistakes of the past and the present. There's an article from The Atlantic from back in August of 2013 entitled The Soviet-Era Strategy That Explains What Russia Is Doing With Snowden. And this piece presents the argument that although part of Putin's decision to grant asylum to Edward Snowden when he was prevented from leaving Russia for South America after leaking NSA files to journalists in 2013, was that it allowed Putin to show that the U.S. can't always get what it wants and bully the world into submission. But there was also a good chance that keeping Snowden on hand would allow them to, what about, their way out of any number of things, especially anything related to surveillance, spying, and hacking any issues that orbit those issues that might arise in the future. Because if the U.S. were to criticize Russia for, say, tapping the phones of journalists or hacking the servers of foreign political parties, Russia could simply point at the revelations that have emerged from Snowden's leaks and say, well, yes, but what about all these things that you're doing? I'm not sure that you are the most credible source of criticism here. And remarkably, the U.S. what about it right back at Russia in regard to Snowden's asylum in their country. From that Atlantic piece, quote, Shortly after Snowden fled from Hong Kong to Moscow, John Kerry said, I wonder if Mr. Snowden chose China and Russia as assistants in his flight from justice because they're such powerful bastions of internet freedom, end quote. The implication being, yeah, we've done some stuff, but at least we don't block off portions of the internet from our citizens and we don't censor news like the Russians do. The Russians implicitly whataboutted us regarding Snowden, and we whataboutted them back about the same, with slightly different talking points. Now, all that said, the Russians do seem to have gotten the better of that particular exchange, and that's in part because this tactic of whataboutism seems to be particularly useful and effective against liberal democratic nations. And I'm using the philosophical definition there, not the political party, not capital L liberal or capital D democrat. Because such cultures put particular value on progress and societal evolution, on growth, on pluralism. And even the hardest core conservative Republican in the United States doesn't want to freeze time or elect a dictator. They might be more cautious about the pace of progress than their capital P progressive countrymen across the political aisle. But in most cases, their views are not top-down oriented in the same way that true authoritarians' views are top-down oriented. And in many ways, these groups are even less inclined toward authoritarianism than their politically liberal counterparts, as they tend to prefer smaller government, one that doesn't play an everyday role in their lives, 
and one that can't take away their ability to defend themselves against their government, including the devices that implicitly allow them to do so. And as a result, most portions of the political spectrum in liberal democratic countries are vulnerable to whataboutist arguments because it plays on their desire to improve things. These arguments become red herrings. They are intentionally planted distractions that tug on the attention of the citizenry and of the government officials in such countries, making them divide their efforts or deviate completely from an inconvenient line of inquiry. You're calling us out for something we did wrong, but hey, look at that thing you're doing wrong. What about that? When another nation says something along those lines, liberal democracies, people who want a certain amount of bottom-up change are likely to say, well, yeah, good point. We should really do something about that. And perhaps even take their eyes off the real point of the conversation they were having before that thought grenade was hurled into their midst. That type of response is typically less likely in places where the small group of people making all the decisions are those who are less likely to look inward at personal flaws and who share little of their power with others who might force them to do so. So authoritarian regimes or crypto-authoritarian regimes, they're not so big on the self-reflection and therefore are not as manipulatable in this way as people and representatives in liberal democracies. Whataboutism is powered by false equivalencies, which are arguments that are made to seem logically equivalent to the arguments that they counter, but which in fact are not. Sometimes these arguments allow small flaws in one political candidate to seem equal to massive flaws in another. Sometimes they equate one war to another war, leaving out all the details of each conflict and the rationales that guided those conflicts, implying that war is war and that's that. To paraphrase an example from the Wikipedia page for false equivalents that I'm fond of, quote, they are both living animals that metabolize chemical energy. Therefore, there's no difference between a pet cat and a pet snail, end quote. There are similarities mentioned here, but the similarities being focused on are not related to attributes that determine whether or not the animal in question is suitable as a pet, and therefore this is a false equivalence. A more specific type of false equivalence is called equivocation, and this is something I gave an example of just a moment ago. To argue that a war is a war is perhaps true in the sense that there is physical conflict, people are injured and die, it's generally conflict that takes place between nations, but just because we use the same word for something doesn't mean it's the same thing. It's possible to be accidentally ambiguous and thereby give the impression that wars are equal in nature, but to intentionally obscure the difference between, say, World War II and the Vietnam War would be to equivocate, which is another informal logical fallacy. Something else I'll link to in the show notes, by the way, is Wikipedia's complete list of logical fallacies, which is amazing and uncomfortable. Because reading through them, you cannot help but find something that you do regularly, but never realized was fallacious. So you're welcome and sorry about that in advance. But back to false equivalencies. Even the whataboutist arguments that are true, like the Soviets calling out the US for our 
atrocious record in regard to minorities are not legitimate arguments because they are addressing non-equivalent issues or non-relevant issues to the discussion that is being had. Being right about something does not mean that you're right about everything. Saying that there are issues elsewhere does not mean that there are not issues in your own backyard. The implication being made by the Russians when they make such arguments is that you are trying to accuse us of something, but you are not worthy of accusing because you are a hypocrite. But if Hitler had said, hey guys, the byproducts of modern industry seem to be leading to a situation in which our climate is shifting in new and unpredictable ways, so perhaps we'd better curtail our emissions and close production loops wherever possible, he wouldn't be any less correct because he's Hitler. We would probably look at what he said through a different lens because of who he was, but it wouldn't change the truth of his statement. Hitler didn't say anything like that as far as I'm aware, but people we disagree with or even hate say things that are true all the time. I don't care for President Trump, but he does periodically say things that are true statements, even things that I wish other politicians would say. If I were to disagree with him in those instances just because I disagree with him on so many other things, I would be hurting myself and the concept of truth, not him. This ability to agree with our perceived enemies is a strength, but it's also unfortunately rare. This is not because we're incapable of it, but rather because we have tribalist tendencies. And those in power, whether we're talking about politicians trying to get our support or brands that are trying to sell us things, benefit from amplifying those tendencies. If they can keep us loyal, they can shape our realities. They can make us believe things that are not true and make us agree with things we don't actually agree with, because everything that other guy says must be false. Perhaps I don't agree with my usual political party on a particular issue, but if they can express their ideas in a way that implies people like me believe the way that they believe, I may come to question my own judgment and appropriate theirs instead. The same is true in reverse, that if they can demonize the other political party sufficiently, I may come to believe that people like me don't believe the things that that other political party believes, and therefore the opinions I arrive at independently, which align with those from that other political party, must be wrong or misinformed. After all, how can a person support both gay marriage and gun ownership rights? According to the usual party lines and the people who run those parties, these are beliefs that are in opposition, and therefore never the twain shall meet. It's often more convenient and less stressful to just hop on board with whichever group aligns with you the most, setting your internal conflicts aside rather than addressing them and risking being shouted down or shamed by the people you agree with on so many other things. Many of us think that we believe many things that we don't necessarily believe because they have been tied to beliefs that we actually have. And it's uncomfortable to break these prepackaged ideological platforms up and build something more us-shaped. It requires a whole lot more effort, but it also requires a great deal of durability and stamina in the face of criticism from people with whom you agree about so many other things. Interestingly, interesting to me at least, is that the best defense against both whataboutism and the tribalism that it preys on tend to be the same thing, increased awareness. 
there's increased self-awareness, that is, knowing our own flaws and actively working to correct them whenever possible. This allows us to continue growing as both individuals and societies, but it also counters our antagonist's ability to what about that particular subject. We're already on it, don't worry about it. Let's talk about what we were actually talking about, please. Then there's increased moral awareness, which allows us to know why, according to our personal set of morals, there's a difference between, for example, criticizing journalists that say mean things about you, and killing and imprisoning journalists who dare to report on your scandals. This also adds to our self-awareness, as it helps us flesh out why we believe what we believe, and then act accordingly. There's increased historical and global awareness, which means that we recognize that what's happening now is not new. We've done this before, whatever the this in question might be. The tactics being used are probably not new, and we're very likely seeing this elsewhere in the world, in other cultures, not just at different points in history. We have no idea the full extent of Russia's meddling in the 2016 U.S. presidential elections, for instance, but it shouldn't come as any surprise that they meddled, at least a bit, in several different ways, because they've been doing the same in Europe for years, and quite openly, and they and others, the United States included, have done the same to other countries in the past. This type of awareness helps make the unthinkable thinkable and comprehensible so that we can better figure out what's happening around us now. Next is increased informational awareness, which means being more learned, more aware of the data and facts, and more aware of how to parse those data and facts from actual news and good sources as opposed to fake news and faux sources. So we can more often tell misinformation from information and can hone the edges of our BS detectors while also taking that information and putting it into practice, actually using it to adjust our views over time. And finally, there's strategic awareness, which is learning to recognize when it is a good move, or at least an option, to set aside some differences with one or many other groups in order to tackle a shared concern. This applies to a wide number of circumstances, but in a broad sense, it's about recognizing shared values and being able to set aside all the not shared values, all the disagreements you have with others to focus on the things that you do agree on, even if only in a very narrow segment of life, so as to be more powerful in trying to solve those big problems or to combat very large, powerful enemies. This type of awareness allows you to see people from the other side of the political spectrum, as potential allies in some things, even if not in everything, and even though they might be your fiercest rival when it comes to other concerns. In general, whataboutism flounders when we are open to both embracing and criticizing everyone equally. I'm against you meddling in our elections, and I'm against us meddling in yours. These are not mutually exclusive beliefs. You can be both in favor of unrestricted gun ownership laws and in favor of laws that allow people to marry whomever they choose. Anyone who tells you that you cannot is trying to control you and force your ideology into a cookie-cutter ideology. They're trying to force your ideology to better align with theirs. And it's worth noting that their ideology was very likely forced on them into a new shape using a cookie cutter in the same way. This refusal to retreat 
to blind to tribalism tends to short-circuit whataboutism almost every time. If you bring up a genuine issue, and the other person whose issue it is says, why don't you focus on your own problems first? It's totally okay to say, I already am, or I disagree with your assertion that these are equivalent matters. Please focus. Either way, it gets you back to the concern to the matter at hand, rather than allowing perhaps a genuine concern or perhaps a fake concern that they are trying to use as a cudgel against you. You're able to set that aside. But even lacking whataboutism to combat, general awareness allows us to fend off many fallacies, our own and those of others, before they too badly cloud our reasoning capabilities, and as a result, negatively influence our actions. As I mentioned in the intro, I have a brand new book that is now available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats. It is entitled Becoming Who We Need to Be, and if you enjoy this podcast, chances are you will enjoy that book. I make my living primarily off of my books, so if you are looking for a way to support this project or my work in general, purchasing that book or any of the other books that I've written would be a great way to do so while also getting your hands on a pretty darn good book. You can find that book and all of my books wherever books are sold on Amazon and Kobo and your local indie bookstore, but you can find a complete list of the books that I've written and links to all of those different purchasing platforms at colin.io. You can also contribute to the show directly if you care to through PayPal or Venmo or by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing the show with a friend. Some of those options are pretty self-explanatory, but you can find a complete list of ways to contribute at letsnotethings.com and then click on the contribute page. One more great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. The company that I use for all of my hosting needs is called HostGator, and I chose them after using about a dozen different hosting companies over the years because their services are really easy to use and they have top-notch customer service if and when you ever find yourself needing that. If you go to hostgator.com slash LKT, you will receive a substantial discount that they provide to listeners of this show. And the other sponsor is Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, you will receive a free 30-day trial of their service, which is great if you have not yet indulged and tried out the audiobook scene. But you'll also get a free credit for any audiobook on their service, and they have a few hundred thousand on there, so there's a lot to choose from. And if you do not have a book in mind already to spend that credit on, might I recommend How We Got to Now by Stephen Johnson. And this is a book I I read a little while ago. I was actually surprised that I haven't recommended it on a past episode because it really aligns well with what I talk about here. It makes connections between different discoveries and technologies over the years and then the movements that emerged, in some cases very massive changes to society and the human race that occurred as a result of these discoveries and inventions. There's a great piece of sales copy from the book that I'll actually read you that I think sums it up pretty well. In his trademark style, Johnson examines unexpected connections between seemingly unrelated fields, how the invention of air conditioning enabled the largest migration of human beings in the history of the species to cities such as Dubai or Phoenix, which would otherwise be virtually uninhabitable, how pendulum clocks helped trigger the Industrial Revolution, and how clean water 
made it possible to manufacture computer chips. This book is an excellent read in whatever format you might happen to pick it up in, and you should definitely do so if you are looking for a book to read. You can pick it up at your local library, get it on your Kindle or your Kobo, grab it at your local indie bookstore. But if you are looking to check it out as an audiobook, might I suggest stopping by audibletrial.com LKT and then using that free credit to pick up a copy of How We Got to Now by Stephen Johnson. You can find out more about me and the work that I do, including the books I've written, at colin.io. You can read my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of Let's Know Things at letsknowthings.com. You can also find me pretty much everywhere on the internet on all the social networks at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.